A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, I think that's so true, especially as we think about our search for certainty. We've been talking about the last couple weeks, and certainly that's what's on everyone's mind right now, uh, as some things loosen up and some things adjust and change, but by and large, we're still right in the middle of this ongoing coronavirus crisis and this quarantine. And as we continue to work through and walk through all this and wrestle with a lot of the lingering questions and the lingering hardships that are still very much part of this new reality, we need to keep that thought in mind that what comes into our minds as we think about God, and certainly God should be at the forefront of our thoughts uh, all the time, especially in times like this, and what we think about God, what comes into our minds when we think about God, says a whole lot about us and where we are in our relationship to him and where we are in life. And certainly that's what Job um, experienced and what he struggled with and what he wrestled with. After his friends gave their input and their counsel and he answered them, the account of Job records a lot of deep turmoil that Job went through. And as he continued to reflect on his situation, he found it very easy to justify himself as righteous, which we know he was at the very beginning of this account when Satan was there before God and and God said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him, no one more righteous, no one of more integrity. He fears God and shuns, runs away from all evil. And so we know Job was a man of strong character, of strong morality, of strong righteousness. So that's all true. The problem was, though, that as Job continued on in his unexplained suffering, he found it very easy to fall back on his righteousness uh, as an anchor and as a means to question God. And he actually used his own righteousness and his own self-justification to accuse God of no longer being just. His own justification ended up being a source of accusing God of no longer being just. And that is a very dangerous place to get to. That shows a perspective that's gotten completely uh, completely off track and completely off focus. Uh, that shows a reality check is needed. And that's certainly what we are going to see today as we come to the end of Job's incredible story. And what we're going to see as we come to a conclusion of this ordeal with Job is that God often uses challenging circumstances to remind us of his sovereignty and to confront and change wrong thinking or a wrong mindset or wrong perspective on our end as it relates to him. And that needs to happen a lot, if we're honest. And I really think that that could be a big part of what God is doing in this time and in these days. So after Job goes back and forth with his friends, um, his statement that continues to be repeated is, I'm right, God is wrong. I mean, that's my summary, but that's really what he's saying. 
I'm just, God is no longer being just. He's not treating me fairly. I'm being righteous. I'm maintaining my integrity, but it doesn't seem to matter to him. God is doing this without cause, and I wish, I just wish I could confront him. I wish I could say this to his face. I wish there would be a court convened where I could put God on the stand, and everyone, all of heaven, all of earth, and God himself would have to say, oh, well, Job, you're right. Yeah, you didn't deserve this. God is, for some reason, no longer treating you justly. And it's in that context that God does eventually and powerfully show up to respond to these accusations and this self-righteousness that Job is exhibiting. Job 38 is where we're going to begin. And there the scripture says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I'm just going to stop right there at verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That right there is quite a scene that I think you'll be able to see in your mind. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've ever been around a tornado or been through a tornado or a hurricane. Uh, It's something you'll never forget. It's just vicious and unpredictable, and you, you don't know what's going to happen next from one second to the next. And it's just a horrendous situation and ordeal. And so there's this whirlwind that the Lord, that God appears in and answers Job from. And apparently Elihu, which was the fourth of Job's friends, he doesn't show up till the end. He, he's patient. He lets the three uh, jokers, you know, get their advice out of the way and he just listens. And then he rightly puts the attention and focus back on God uh, in a proper manner. He rightly rebukes the friends, and then he rightly calls Job to account for his own self-righteousness. And so he actually exhibits a lot of wisdom. And apparently, Elihu saw an approaching storm off in the distance, and he describes it as an example of the power and righteousness and perfection of God. And that's found in Job 36, uh, really from verse 26 all the way into chapter 37. Um, And so that's kind of the scene. He sees this approaching storm, and he uses that to put the attention on God. And other times in Scripture, the whirlwind is associated with God's divine presence. It happens throughout other places in Scripture. Um, I think of God bringing Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, a, a tornado, a vortex-type thing. And then God appeared to Ezekiel in a whirlwind. Um, he seems to use that, uh, the whirlwind, the storm, as a visual aid pointing to his unmanageable and untamable nature and his unmatched power, like a tornado or a hurricane that cannot be controlled or opposed by any of us. And that reminds me of uh, the beaver's statement about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the children are there in Narnia and they're just hearing about Aslan for the first time, and they hear that he's the king of beasts, he's a lion, and uh, Lucy says, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, Haven't you heard a word that Mrs. Beaver has said? He's a lion. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. I love that part of that book, and I think that's exactly how we should think of God. He's 
as later was said of Aslan. He's not a tame lion. That's said of Aslan, the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And we need to remember that too. Our, our God, Scripture says, is a consuming fire. He's not tame. He's not safe. He's not confinable or predictable. But my friends, he is always good, faithfully, perfectly good. And I think we need to keep that in mind, especially in days like this. It's interesting to me, too, here with just this first verse about God appearing in a whirlwind and answering Job out of this storm. It's interesting to me that Job, excuse me, Job's story began with a mighty storm. And now, here at the end, there's another storm. The first storm resulted in Job's suffering in that mighty storm. Now, the story ends with Almighty God appearing in this mighty storm, which results in Job's restoration. The first storm was allowed by God to be destructive. This storm was used by God to be instructive. And both point to God's perfect and his personal sovereignty. This storm is not meant to torment Job. This storm is meant for his growth and his good. And I know you've had this experience that sometimes God sends and uses a storm to get our attention and then to turn that attention back to him and back to his true nature. And maybe that's what he's doing uh, in this time through this situation that we find ourselves in. Maybe that's what he's been doing for a long time in your life and you just haven't responded yet. I encourage you to do that. If there's been a storm in your life and you're a believer, know that God isn't using that as a tool of wrath or of judgment on you. That's it's not what he does. Scripture tells us there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, and he does not destine us for wrath. So he wants to use this, I think, to get your attention back to him, back to his true nature. Let him do that. Well, let's jump back to uh, the account of Job here in Job 38. So the Lord answers Job out of this whirlwind, and he says this, verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And I just want you to pay attention to the beautiful, even while it's terrible, just this beautiful um, poetic way in which God responds to Job. Uh, it's, it's just incredible what is said. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. 
Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanses of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Then in chapter 40, Uh, Focusing from verse 8 to 10, God continues, and he says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Remember, that's what I said Job ends up doing uh, through his self-defense and self-righteousness, self-vindication. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Are you willing, Job, to actually say, I'm wrong, capable of wrong? Are you willing to actually infringe on my character in that way? Are you willing to actually think that that me, the perfect God over all the universe, can actually be wrong, and you're willing to do that just so that you can be upheld as right and innocent? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. In other words, if you can do those things, if you know all of those things that that I just asked you if you did, which you must know if you know without a doubt, if you have such perfect, sure knowledge that there is no way you could ever possibly be wrong, then that must mean you're God. You must have all knowledge. You must have all wisdom. And if that's true, go ahead. Sit on my throne. Adorn yourself like I do. Sit in the place of God. If you're able to have absolutely no doubt or possibility that you could maybe be wrong or guilty, because only God can do that. Then, after more statements of rebuke and irony that God employs, Job does respond And in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, we see this beautiful, absolutely powerful, necessary, good response and repentance on Job's part, where he realizes, wow, I was so wrong. I don't know everything there is to know about even my own heart and my own mind, and I certainly don't know all the things about creation that you asked me uh, sarcastically if I did, and, and I certainly have no business calling you into question, and, and I certainly am not capable of taking up your throne. Look, listen to what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God asked him at the beginning. That's the question that God started with. In other words, Job is saying, you're right. I, I did speak to you without knowledge. I, I spoke about things I had no business speaking about. I, I 
called into question things I didn't understand at all. Therefore, he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's again what God said to him. And here's Job's response. I love this. This is, this is such a beautiful posture and position of a repentant heart and mind. Verse 5, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I thought I knew about you, is what he's saying. But now my eye sees you. I, I actually see you for what you are. I see you for who you are. I, I do now comprehend you in as much as I am able to. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My friends, that should always be our response before our God. Um, when we do see him for who he is and what he is, and we do comprehend even a, a slight part of how he works, anytime he calls us into a, a fresh perspective and, and he renews our vision, our right vision of him, then our response should be one of Job's where we repent and we say, oh, what was I thinking? I'm nothing but dust and ashes, and I step away from my arrogance. That should always be true of, of our heart and our mind. And, and what Job shows us, and, and this is really an encouraging thought, is that even righteous people have room to grow. Job was righteous. He was a person of integrity. But that doesn't mean he had it all figured out. That doesn't mean he didn't still need growth. That didn't mean that there weren't some areas in his life that needed cleaned up and sharpened up. And, and that's certainly what was true of him. And that's always going to be true for us. Even righteous people have room to grow. There's a C.S. Lewis quote that, that I really love. And I think not only does it apply to Job's situation, it applies to the days in which we still find ourselves in. It, it applies to our new normal. And that is this, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's from the problem of pain. We're so often like a child that uh, plays with the box their present came in. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you've, you have kids that uh, at birthdays or Christmas time when they were younger, when they were little, uh, you know, you, you spend all this time thinking of the right gift for them, and you went to all that trouble, and you purchased the gift or gifts, and you put them all in this nice package, but the gift is what's inside the package. No matter how pretty the package looks, no matter how big the box is, what's important is what's inside, right? But what happens? Your kid opens up the present, this beautiful, in many cases, expensive gift that you just can't wait for them to play with and enjoy, and you just want to see the joy on their face as they open that, that gift and that present. What happens, though? They put the present, the gift, aside, and they are occupied with the box the gift came in. They spend time playing with the wrapping or playing with the box. And you say, no, no, no honey, the, the present's over here. And, and they just kind of look at you like, yeah, I know, but this, this is what I really want. And you're like, oh, are you kidding me? And we're so often like that. 
when it comes to God. You know, he has all of this treasure and, and this beautiful, priceless gift, which is himself, that he wants our attention to be occupied with, that we need our attention to be occupied with. But we spend so much time fooling around with the box, which is now ripped and useless. That's how we are. I'm going to give you another C.S. Lewis quote along the same line. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's from his great book, The Weight of Glory. And so what all that means for us, because that's true, that's what describes all of us, if we're willing to be honest, that we are far too easily pleased with things in life. We're far too easily distracted by the gift instead of being consumed with the gift giver. We have to take a step back and say, yeah, that's me. A lot of times, that's me. And so God, in love, as the perfect loving Father he is, will often cause the lesser things that hold our attention and hold our affection to get crumpled up and taken away so that we will focus on the real treasure that he has for us, which, as I said before, is ultimately himself. He is always going to be our greatest treasure. And we should always have our our complete and our supreme affection set on him. And we should be consumed by him above all other things. But so often we get distracted and consumed by such lesser things. And so in love, he will take those things away, even at our protest, because he knows our true, our our best good is going to be found in him. And he wants to always bring us and always have us know and experience the best good. But that's only in himself. And so he'll do whatever it takes to remove that obstacle from him out of love. One more C.S. Lewis quote that carries that thought forward. I just can't, can't avoid giving you this quote because it just fits so well with, with everything that, uh, that I, I just said and that we're talking about here. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There is no peace and happiness apart from himself. That's from mere Christianity. That's absolutely true. That is always true. That there is no true fulfillment. There's no real satisfaction. There's no real joy. There's no real abiding happiness outside of or apart from God. And for every believer, that is manifested and maintained through the person and the work of our living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just no such reality of those things, those good things, apart from him. And so I really think that God is using this shutdown and this quarantine to teach and remind us of that truth. We need to listen to that. We need to receive that. Psalm 46.10 says this, 
Be still and know. Be assured, be convinced, and experience. That's what's wrapped up in that word know. Be still, be be calm, be quiet, and know that I am God, he says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And that's not in spite of COVID-19 in 2020. That's through COVID-19 in 2020. That's in the midst of it. I think God is using this time and this crisis to point all of our attention, saved and unsaved alike, to the fact that there has to be something more than the fleeting nature of life. Look at how how easily life is disrupted. Look at how easy our normal gets just thrown out the window. It doesn't take much at all. It takes a little virus to ravage and wreak havoc throughout all the earth where no one is untouched by it. So that means that all that we hold so dearly and all that we look to for our fulfillment and our satisfaction just can't deliver, which means there has to be a greater, more constant source of certainty and security. And there is. It's found in God and in God alone. And I believe he's using this coronavirus crisis and pandemic to reinforce that, to remind us of that, that he will be exalted. He alone is worthy of exaltation, and he will be exalted throughout all the earth. Job's experiences and his story are really about God and what Job really believed about him. And my friends, the same is true for us. And The same is true for our experiences in this current chapter of our story. Like Job, we may never be given the answer to the why behind the difficult days that we go through, and that needs to be okay. Job, as far as we know, never got the answer. He never got the why behind the what that was happening to him. And that may be true for us. We may never actually get those answers. And that needs to be okay, because God wants to bring us to the point where we trust in his character, his constant, perfect goodness, and he wants to bring us to the point that we will worship and serve, love and live for him no matter what the weather of life is like. That no matter what comes our way, no matter what storms come our way and that we go through, no matter what the weather of of life is like for us, that we will still believe in him and trust in him and worship him and serve him and love for him and live for him and proclaim him just as much when the seas are calm and the skies are clear. And if we would commit to do that now, while all this is still going on, just imagine how much our lives will be changed after these circumstances change. But but let's not wait for that. Let's step into all that God wants to do in our lives through this crisis. Let's step into all that now. Let's learn what he wants us to learn now. Let's let's experience the growth that he wants to bring into our lives through it now, not, not after. And we'll find when things do calm down and quiet down and get back to normal, you know what we'll find? We'll find that we will never be the same. 
we'll find that normal isn't enough for us anymore. We won't want to go back to normal the way things were before COVID-19. We'll want to continue on in the way that, that we are because of COVID-19. Let that be what's true of us. Oh, how beautiful and wonderful that would be. So my challenge to you, to me, to all of us is this. Let's use the remainder of this time to reclaim a right perspective of God. Let's remember that he will always be the answer to our search for certainty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the constant source of certainty in our lives, in our world, in our universe, in all of eternity. I thank you that we don't need to look elsewhere. We, we shouldn't look elsewhere. And when we do look elsewhere, we're not going to find certainty. We're going to find the complete opposite. Because certainty and fulfillment and peace and true happiness, it's only found in you. I thank you that you showed us through Job's experiences and his ordeal that though he was righteous and though we might be righteous, and certainly through Christ we are righteous, we have the righteousness of your Son clothing us because of his blood shed for us. But even righteous people have room to grow, and we need to grow. I thank you for showing us through Job's story that you are sovereign over everything. And even though Satan might be allowed to cause trouble and cause hardship, he is on a very short leash. And you use even what he is allowed to do for our good, for our growth, to accomplish your purpose, your perfect purpose. Father, all of this shows us that you reign and that in your reigning and ruling, you are always just. You are always right and righteous. You are always good. And you always have our true good in mind. But you know that our true and ultimate good is only and always found in you. And so you will bring storms into our lives and you will do things that cause what we are pursuing and what we are anchoring ourselves to that's not you to be crumpled and taken away so that we will see only you after that. That's how much you love us. Thank you for loving us in that way. Thank you for being a God who always reigns. Throughout all the earth you reign. Throughout all the earth your glory is on display. And you want us to see it, and you will keep drawing us back to see that and to see you high and exalted. Thank you for reigning, and thank you for being righteous in all that you do as you reign. Keep us focused on you. Help us to learn what you want us to learn. Thank you for who and what you are and all that you do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless, church.